The Conspiracy Podcast contains discussions of violence, sexual situations, and other adult themes, along with a healthy dose of profanity. So basically, all the good stuff. Thanks for listening. Nine-year-old Walter Collins left his mother, Christine Collins, after she gave him a dime to go to the movies in Mount Washington, an area northeast of Los Angeles, California. That would be the last time Christine ever saw her son again. This began a whirlwind investigation, and something you'd only think to see or hear about in a movie. For five months, Walter was nowhere to be found. Then one day, a boy in DeKalb, Illinois, told authorities he was Walter Collins. The story eventually escalated to Christine being committed to a psych ward and the L.A. Police Department trying to cover up an awful crime. This whole story and case blows my mind, and the 100-year anniversary of this case is still seven years away. This is the story of the disappearance of Walter Collins and the tragedy his mother went through thanks to the incompetence of the Los Angeles Police Department. Welcome back, friends, to Conspiracy, the podcast that you probably forgot about, and so did we. But we're back, and we're here to talk about the incompetent police, as usual. Sometimes murder, mostly cults. Today, missing children. Tomorrow, probably the same. Anyways, this is Liz from the corn. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, this is Renee. Renee, you can't shut up, ever. And I'm Katie. I'm chilling here next to a big pile of laundry. <laughs> Has that been folded since March 21st, 2020? Yes. Okay. Yep. It's time to teach your children how to fold laundry. Um, yeah, they've tried to help me. And he does the thing that all kids do where he takes it. And he just does this. Here's the clothes. It's just like I folded it. I mean, just give him his clothes and be like, okay, fold your clothes. Here you go. Because then I have to rifle through his clothes all unfolded and I get anxiety and I get so upset. Love that for you. (laughs) Uh, Over here in the child-free paradise. Literally same. Thank you for the free birth control. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) We spent the day driving around uh, in the Jeep with the doors off. That's nice. What did you guys do? Anything exciting? That sounds fun. Oh, I mean, nothing truly exciting. We just went, we went to the big city to have brunch. Uh-huh. Ooh. Oh, my God. I'm living vicariously through you because people don't brunch here. <gasps> what? What? There's restaurants, but, like, brunch is not a thing. You know what I mean? Like, people don't get in their heels, and there's no, like, pre-gaming, and then you go eat eggs, and then you get really fucking drunk, and you're crawling down the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. There's none of that. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that's how it is here. There's no brunch restaurants near us. So if we want to do brunch, we have to go to Atlanta. It's like, do you want to do Waffle House or IHOP or Cracker Barrel? I would commit a really offensive crime to eat Waffle House right now. <gasps> oh, that's right. They don't go north of Kentucky, do they? Damn. There's like one in like the very, very, very south of Indiana. But I bet it's too clean. Yeah. You said it's- I, if they're, I bet their line cooks have teeth. What? 
terrible. I can't go there. <sighs> I bet they don't have fights at three o'clock in the morning there. Can't trust it. Can I get a waffle? <laughs> Did y'all see the guy who proposed to the girl in Waffle House? Oh, God, no. I'm not surprised. Probably at 3 a.m. Probably. Were they sober? I don't know. Mm. It was Billy Bob and... and Stacey Angelina? <laughs> what? Oh. And Angelina? Yes. <laughs> Billy Bob and Angelina. That's where they originally got engaged. I wish. God. And Speaking of Angelina Jolie... What a fantastic segue, because that's kind of what we're talking about this episode. No, we are not counting down top five movies where you can kind of sort of see Angelina Jolie's boobs, because I was really also down with her, her really high thigh slits in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh-huh. Thank you for getting me through the later half of my teenage years, Angelina Jolie. Honestly. Mm-hmm. But we are discussing a... Uh, super cool and interesting case, actually. It's pretty fucking weird. That's all I gotta say. That's it. That's the episode. You said it's pretty <laughs> fucking weird. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> That's it. And we're back. Yeah. So, ladies, what are you drinking? Well, I'm being Renee today, and I have three beverages. I have water. I'm having an absolute mango mule seltzer. That sounds really good. And I'm having. A watermelon mint oolong tea with honey. That sounds delicious and very refreshing. I'm having a refreshing evening. Hot Indiana corn summers. Well, I'm not in the cornfields anymore. So the last time we talked, my apartment was in an actual cornfield, like not being ironic. But the children of the so corn got to her, so she meant. Now I'm in the, I'm still cornfield adjacent. So the children of the corn have followed her. Yes. So not so corny. But still, <laughs> Midwest. Yeah, I feel like Indiana is just one of those states where you're never more than like 15 minutes away from a cornfield. Or a soybean field, both. The joke is like corn on your right and soy on your left. <laughs> Katie, what are you drinking? I'm just drinking some water and some water. <laughs> Regular water and then some sparkling water. Yeah, that's all. What are you drinking, Renee? Did you already say it? Well, that sounds lovely too, Katie. No, all your different types of water. No, I didn't. Um, I am drinking water because I, you know, to balance out my other drinks, I've got um, a bastardization of a Starbucks drink that I'm calling purple drink. It's um, blueberries and raspberry lemon hibiscus tea with coconut milk yum and then i have a uh sparkling water with a key lime liqueur key lime cream liqueur and raspberry fresh raspberries Mm. okay i'm ready to talk about the corruption of the police okay yeah me too so i'm gonna kind of talk about uh christine and then we'll talk about Christine and Walter and what happened. Just to give a little backstory, Christine Ida Dune, I think that's how you say her last name. It's D-U-N-N-E. So I'm going to say Dune. Dune. I feel like it's either Dune or Dunn. I've heard it pronounced both ways. I feel like Dune is okay. All right. So Christine Ida Dune was born in 1888 in California. Christine's mother was an immigrant from England and her father from Ireland. Christine lived in California and worked for a telephone company. While living in California, she met Walter Anson, a con man and robber who went by the pseudonym Walter Collins. 
They were married, and in 1918, Christine gave birth to their son, Walter Collins. I'm going to assume he should have a junior at the end, but he never did. So, there's okay. that. In 1923, Walter Collins Sr. I just added that in, by the way, once again. <laughs> didn't find that in any of the notes. Was sent to Folsom State Prison for armed robbery. So, Christine was left to raise Walter Collins as a single mother. So, this is where our story moves forward to that awful day. March 10th, 1928 was another normal day for Christine and nine-year-old Walter. Christine was heading to work and Walter wanted to go to the movies. It was 1928 and it was pretty normal for parents to allow their kids to go to public places on their own because hello, crime didn't happen. Just kidding. It did, but (laughs) nobody knew what the fuck to do about it when it did happen back then. (laughs) Also, you know, she's going to work. She doesn't really have... It's better for her to send him off to do something than to just mm-hmm. be like, okay, well, see you in a few hours. Do whatever. Like, it's better to know where he's going to be. Right. You know, looking back, like, he's nine years old, and his mom's going to work for the entire day, and he's going to get to wander around town or stay home by himself. Yet, I have a 10-year-old who, hell no, I would not leave him home alone right now. Mm-hmm. I, I can't even imagine being like, all right, I'm leaving for six hours. Be back soon. Yeah. No. So Christine gave Walter money, and they both went their separate ways. Christine was sure that she'd see Walter later that evening when she returned from work. But when the evening time came, Christine arrived home to an empty house. This is when Christine's life was turned upside down. She went room to room searching for Walter. She wandered around outside yelling his name, but Walter was nowhere to be found. Christine informed the Los Angeles Police Department of her son's disappearance that evening. The lead detective on the case was Captain J.J. Jones. This guy becomes... And is and always will be the biggest douchebag. <sighs> Pissed me off. All right. So she contacts the police department. Uh, you've got Captain J.J. Jones coming on in. And so they searched for Walter everywhere, but he never turned up. They followed up on hundreds of leads, but they were all dead ends. The police also tried to tell Christine that her son just ran away from home. But Christine knew her son would never run away. There were reports from neighbors on Collins Street that they saw Walter in an automobile with two foreign men, which, how do you know they're foreign? I don't understand. Um, So another neighbor claimed, another neighbor claimed that a man and a woman were asking others for Walter's address, but that was also a dead end. The case seemed to be going cold, and that is until one day in August of 1928. Los Angeles police got a strange phone call from another police department informing them that they had found a boy. The call came from DeKalb, Illinois, and the boy they found claimed to be Walter Collins. The Los Angeles Police Department corresponded with the DeKalb, Illinois Illinois Police Department via letters and pictures. Christine eventually paid for the young boy to be brought to California. She wasn't convinced that it was her son, but she had some hope. And upon seeing the boy in person after he arrived in Los Angeles, Christine adamantly denied the boy was Walter. While the young boy did, oh. yeah, like she's looking him up and down and being like, "This ain't my son." Well, I mean, I feel like a mom would just know automatically, especially if your if your kid has been missing, and then all of a sudden you're you're amping yourself up to think that you're going to have this great reunion with your child, and then you see a child and it's very clearly not yours. Mm-hmm. Like you would know exactly, right? Like if someone brought me a cat that wasn't my cat, I'd be like, "You're lying." Right. But the the boy did share some physical simil- similarities with Walter, but she still knew that it was not him. The police, though, did not care. 
They insisted that Christine take the young boy home and try the boy out. Like, literally, they said, try the boy out. Let's see if he'll be a good fit in your life. He may not be your son, but let's just just give him a try. What is he, a beta fish at the carnival? (laughs) People wonder how Albert Fish succeeded during this time period. Exactly. Hello, police officers. Do you have any lost children who need parents? (laughs) I'm here to make dinner for Mm. the children. Of course, not of the children. I don't want to think about him in, again. So, um, <laughs> I don't want to think about the peanut butter. Oh, oh. <sighs> I'm sorry for bringing him up. I regret everything. That's just what it reminded me of. That they're God just like, it. oh, take this random child and just see if it and, fits. And, and that's another thing. Like, I understand back then also, like, sexual predators weren't, like, a thing that everybody was like concerned about really but like mm-hmm. you're telling this woman who is saying this child is not mine take him home and try this child out what if christine was a sexual predator like hello you like what if her child not you know not this isn't a spoiler because this isn't what happens but like what if she was like psychotic and her child was missing because her child was dead and she had him buried under her cellar floorboards exactly like, just test out this child we still don't we don't know if he's yours, but he might be. Exactly. The Los Angeles Police Department told Christine that Walter might have gone through a lot in the five months since he went missing, so his appearance might seem different to Christine. So the Los Angeles Police Department wanted to close the case as quickly as they could. They wanted there to be a happy outcome for this grieving mother. And why would they want that, you ask? <laughs> well, three months before Walter's disappearance, Marion Parker, age 12, went missing in Los Angeles. The outcome was grim. Two days after Marion went missing, her father met her abductor and exchanged uh, cash for Marion. So it was like a ransom thing, like, pay me money, I'm going to give you your child. But as the abductor drove away, he threw out a bag with the mutilated remains of Marion in it. So they were facing, the Los Angeles Police Department was essentially facing scrutiny right away when Walter's disappearance went public. Because parents were scared and worried that their kids would fall victim next. So they felt very satisfied the fact that they actually found Walter. Which is why the Los Angeles Police Department, once again, is really shitty for this whole thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Christine took the boy home with her. And even though she knew it was not her son, she asked the boy questions about where he had been these last five months. But she was not given clear answers by the boy. Christine allowed the young boy to stay with her for three weeks. And then she had had enough of this charade. Which, if you watch the movie with Angelina Jolie, uh, the point that, like, she really realizes that this is not her son is uh, he, like, is taking a bath or shower and gets out and she brings him a towel. And she notices, I guess, that either his penis is, I can't remember, is not circumcised or it is circumcised, whichever is not her son's. I don't know. So, actually what Christine did, though, was she got Walter's dental, dental records and she took them to Captain Jones. She proved that the boy was not her son. But Jones, being the misogynistic, can't be embarrassed by a woman coward of a man that he is, had had enough of Christine trying to prove him wrong. And he did not want the Los Angeles Police Department to have failed yet again. So Captain Jones had Christine committed to the psychiatric ward of the Los Angeles County Hospital under a Code 12, which a Code 12 means that they are admitted because someone is deemed difficult or an inconvenience. Oh, okay. So someone wanting her own child that she birthed and raised is an inconvenience. Okay. Okay. The fact that a code 12 
is something that can actually be used to get somebody admitted into a hospital. Like, mm-hmm. that's crazy. That's fine. Can I admit my children for being an inconvenience? Is that is that okay? Asking for a friend. <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> okay. So Christine endured very harsh treatment while she was there. She was given a lot of different medicines to try and alter her state for her to finally be convinced that this boy was in fact her son. So they were basically, they were doing shock therapy on her. They were giving her so much medication basically to fuck her brain up enough to say, can you stop saying that this is not your son? Like this is, is this boy your son? Is this Walter Collins? Christine was evaluated for 10 days. Her dignity as a woman, a grieving mother, was taken from her in these 10 days. The reason she was finally released was that the young boy admitted the truth about who he was. So the young boy was actually 12-year-old Arthur Hutchins Jr., a runaway from Iowa. While in Illinois, Hutchins was picked up by the police and was asked if he was Walter Collins. At first, he said no, but then he realized that if he said yes, he'd get a free ride to Hollywood to meet his favorite actor, Tom Mix. So Arthur admitted to being Walter Collins, and this new discovery was a blessing for Christine, for Christine but it also brought back the heartache of not knowing where Walter really was. She continued on with her life, still hoping every day that Walter would return home. So now we're going to kind of move over to where they discovered where Walter really is, which heads up. I don't think I go into like great detail about like some nasty stuff that happens, but like murder is involved. Okay. Just saying. So meanwhile, in Wineville, California, which is, about an, which is about an hour east from Los Angeles, some really awful, unspeakable crimes were taking place. A young woman named Jesse Clark came out to Wineville to check on her younger brother, Sanford Clark. He had moved out to California with her uncle, Gordon Stewart Northcott. Upon arriving, Jesse witnessed not only Sanford being abused, but she became part of the abuse as well. Jesse managed to escape and travel back to Canada, where she informed her mother what was happening down in Wineville. Her mother informed the authorities. American authorities were also made aware of the situation, so they drove out to Wineville. Gordon's house was on a ranch in Wineville, and when Gordon saw the police driving up to his house, he asked Sanford to stall them. Sanford, fearing for his safety and fearing Gordon and his mother would harm him if he didn't do as they asked, stalled the police while Gordon and his mother, Sarah Lewis, escaped. They were later caught in British Columbia. Sanford informed police that Gordon Northcott and his mother were the two people responsible for kidnapping and murdering Walter Collins. But Walter was not their only victim. Sanford would ride around with Gordon, and due to Sanford's young age, he would convince small boys to come with them because their parents wanted them home. So essentially, they would drive around in a truck and stop if they saw like small boys on like walking down the road by themselves, because once again, it's 1928. Parents just let their six-year-old child walk down the street to Bobby Joe's house. <laughs> So Gordon Northcott and his uh, cousin pull up and because the uh, Sanford is so young, he's able to just be like, hey, your mom uh, said she wants you home. And these kids not knowing any, you know, because they're tiny humans, not knowing how the Mm -hmm. real world works, say, okay, and hop in this car and off they go. So the boys were brought to the Wineville Ranch where they were tortured and kept until Gordon was ready to murder them. Sanford told authorities that Gordon would use an axe to murder the boys and then pour quicklime on their bodies before burying them on the property. Sanford was shown pictures of the boys, and that is where he confirmed Walter Collins was one of the victims. 
Sanford went back out to Wineville with authorities to show them where the bodies were buried. Gordon confessed to murdering two brothers who went missing 30 miles away from where Walter was taken. Gordon's mother confessed to murdering Walter Collins. The exact total of boys kidnapped and murdered by Gordon with his mother is unknown, but speculation is it was around 20. They never found Walter's body, but they found three shallow graves with body part remains from other boys, but never Walter's. Oh. Yeah. Christine could not accept that Walter was dead. She still had hope he was alive somewhere. Christine sued J.J. Jones for the awful, awful way that she was treated and for her being committed to the psych ward. She won the case and Jones was required to pay $10,800, but he never paid Christine. Jones was also only suspended for four months for his role in the whole ordeal. Christine lived the rest of her days alive, believing Walter would one day return home to her. Christine Collins died in 1964, and she was 76 years old. She was buried in Los Angeles, California. So did they ever say, like, the reason they didn't kill Sanford was it just so they would have a small boy that they could use to trick other boys? I think so, and also he was related to Gordon Northcott. Oh, okay. That was, was, uh, Gordon was his uncle. Okay. Uh, That's right, that's right. So he couldn't get away with it. I mean, yeah. Gordon Northcott had, I mean, he was a fucked up individual, obviously. What gave you that impression? (laughs) But I don't really know, even though Sanford did confirm that Walter was one of the boys who was murdered at the Wineville Ranch, I don't know if there's any clear, concrete evidence that he was. So, you know, I don't think they found his remains. They found those other boys' remains, but not Walter's. So nobody honestly really knows if Walter died at the hands of Gordon Northcott or if, mm. you know, he really did just maybe he lived a totally different life with somebody else. Maybe somebody kidnapped him and just kept him as their own or somebody else murdered him. We don't know. Is there any kind of like indication that it was him or we're we just assuming? Yeah. No, no, no. Like that, that, that her son wasn't there. Well, that's the, the police were showing pictures of the boys that have been missing in Los Angeles to Sanford, and so Sanford was mm-hmm. was going through all the pictures and saying whether or not one of those boys that was missing in Los Angeles was a boy that was at the Wineville Ranch, and he did. I he mm-hmm. identified Walter Collins as one of the boys that had been there and that had been murdered, but that's the only proof. I wonder how they were able to identify the other bodies, but not his. I mean, if if they if the bodies hadn't badly decomposed yet, and they're able to, you know see facial expressions i guess that's true it's not facial expressions because dead bodies don't make facial expressions jesus just like the looks of them the looks the looks of these kids these poor unfortunate kids poor unfortunate kids i don't want to seem like i'm downplaying it god that's always i feel like do they for some reason i remember the movie having a happier ending but it doesn't okay (laughs) it doesn't but i feel (laughs) Okay, 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 okay. Because, like, to get a feel for the case, I looked up, like, the gist of it. And for some reason, I remembered the movie having some sort of happier ending. And I was reading it, and I was like, oh, no, this ends, like, really sad. The happy ending might be, uh, I mean, the happy part, at least towards the end of the movie, is when she's able to leave the psych ward. Like, she's been held in there, been through electric shock therapy, and all the medication she's given like is finally able to leave without having to say mm-hmm. 
this this boy is my son because that was the whole thing they just wanted her to say just say he's your son because you sound cuckoo bananas yet they all sound cuckoo bananas they should all be in the psych ward yeah Oh, have we even said, like, the name of the movie? I don't think so. I feel like no. we've mentioned it a bunch of times. Oh, okay. So, listeners, if you're interested, if you... I don't know how you wouldn't be aware of this movie. I feel like it was very popular at the time. Mm-hmm. But it's The Changeling by, with uh, Angelina Jolie. And is Mark Ruffalo in it? No, you're thinking of Shutter Island. Well, let me... <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> the same... It's the same time period. No, but I think uh, John yeah. Malkovich is in it. So you, oh, no one else is famous. It's just Angelina Jolie, okay. John Malkovich. Oh, Jeffrey Donovan's kind of famous. Uh, Gatlin Griffith, some kid plays Walter. Colm Fior plays the chief of police. No, yeah, nobody else famous. Amy yeah. Ryan is famous. Amy Ryan plays Holly on The Office. Yeah, get it together. Like there's office famous and then there's famous famous and she's office famous. So the story of Christine and Walter Collins is insane and full of missteps along the way by people in charge who should have known better. Thankfully, those specific events surrounding that case are unique that we know of, of course. So I was looking for cases that were like this with sort of mistaken identities and stuff like that, and really wasn't able to find any that were mistaken identity plus police malpractice. Well, yeah, so, it's not every day that the cops give you the wrong kid and they're like, fuck you or we're going to institutionalize you. Please tell me there are no modern day stories of it. No. Okay, no, no, no. I was so, about to say. In, yeah. Instead of trying to fit those parameters, I instead focused on what I feel like is the hallmark of this specific case, which is not just the lack of incompetence, but the lack of awareness in regards to their incompetence. Like not just not doing their job, but being completely unaware that they weren't doing their job correctly. So with that in mind, I have three cases I'm going to try and go through quickly where I feel like the cops in charge dropped the ball in a spectacular way. Every case they've ever had in every city of the world. (laughs) There you go. Every true crime case you've ever heard. I'm just going to speed run them. (laughs) (laughs) The episode is 10 hours long. (laughs) (laughs) Get, Get ready and roll some fatties. Here are the ones that I chose that I found most interesting also none of these happened in america i deliberately picked ones that did not happen in america two of them by coincidence happened in australia so it just goes to show that this level of dum-dum isn't you know i just isn't solely concentrated in america so these are my main sources Uh, Questions persist despite discovery of bodies of girls who went missing 25 years ago by Roland Shijijo. Uh, Lost and Found, The Disappearance of Ursula Barwick by Winsome Denier and Suzanne Shanery. And The Girl Who Came Back from the Dead by Fatim Hemraj. The first story I'm going to talk about is the story of Megumi Yashiki and Narumi Takumi. So here are the basics of this case. At around 9 p.m., on May 5th, 1966, Yashiki and Takumi, both residents of Himi City in Japan, told their families they were heading to Yuzo City inside Yashiki's vehicle. They were on their way to an abandoned onsen hot springs resort named Hotel Subono, known among residents in the region as a haunted spot. 
This hotel was located about 37 miles east of Hemi. The hotel was a six-floor structure, and in the early 1980s, the manager of the hotel disappeared after filing for bankruptcy. So after he disappeared and there was nobody to take care of the hotel, it was abandoned and fell into disrepair. And if y'all aren't familiar, an onsen is a specific type of resort that is built typically near or around naturally occurring hot springs in Japan. So you can go there and relax in the hot springs. They typically have some for men and some for women. Or at certain times of day, men can use them. And at certain times of day, women can use them. So sign me up. I really want to go to one. They sound amazing. They still have them today. Um, So at the time, Yashiki and Tamuki were on their way to visit this spooky abandoned hotel. It was also known as a hangout spot for what was called Bosuzuku, which were Japanese youth biker gangs. So not exactly maybe the safest spot to go. And they had visited the structure twice before, though, so they were familiar with its location and how to get there. And this time they packed a flashlight and batteries and a pen light so they could better explore the area. At some point during their, what did I say, 37-mile journey, they stopped at what was known as Kaumaru Park, which was a gathering spot for young people located near Fushiki Port, which is about 24 miles away from Hotel Subono. So this was kind of like not necessarily technically a halfway point, but close to a halfway point. And they filled up Yashiki's car at a gas station. And then Takumi sent a message via pager to one of their friends because this was the 90s. No cell phones, but they did have pagers. So via pager. So Takumi sent a message that said, we're in Uzo. It was the last time anyone ever heard from either teenage girl. Two days later, their families reported them missing. And then the following March, when they both would have become legal adults in Japan, the Toyama Prefectural Police released their names publicly to further encourage people to come forward. The June 1997 issue of the monthly magazine Gekin Hokuku Actus included a story about their disappearance, saying around the abandoned building there were no signs of anything belonging to the victims, such as bloodstains or clothes. So because they were heading to the abandoned hotel, that was the place where police focused their efforts on trying to find them. The lack of evidence and witnesses made it difficult for police to make any sort of headway in this case, and it sat dormant for nearly two decades. However, A breakthrough came in late 2014 when police became aware of three eyewitnesses who claimed to know exactly what happened to the two young women. For some reason, after they became aware that there were these people who had been there, knew what happened, and wanted to talk to police, they sat on this information for six years to follow up. These three people, who their names still have not been released to the public, but they were not brought in to talk to the police until January of 2020. What the fuck? What? And this is what they told police. A car with two women dropped from a parking lot into the sea near what was then known as Kaumaru Park at midnight of a major holiday in 1996. The witness added that they approached the car to speak to the girls, and the car suddenly started moving backwards and fell into the water. When they were asked why they had waited so long to come forward, they just said they were scared of telling the police. 
So the police conducted multiple surveys of Fushigi Port with metal detectors and divers before finally finding the car at a depth of about four miles below the surface. So on Wednesday, March 4th of 2020, a team of 35 people gathered on the dock at 7 a.m. Five hours later, the vehicle wrapped in blue sheets was placed on the back of a truck. In addition to the remains of the young women, the police also found the credit card receipt for the gas purchased. Naturally, even though the bodies of Yashiki and Takumi have been found, there are still plenty of questions that haven't been answered. The identities of the witnesses haven't been released, so police or so people are curious as to who they are in the 18 years between when this happened and when they actually went to the police. There are a lot of rumors that these girls went to the hotel, were assaulted by the Bosozuku biker gangs, that they were put into sex slavery, that they were just like a lot of terrible things were happening. And it was the fact that nobody knows who the witnesses are. There are people who think that these guys might be members of the Bosozuku biker gang and might have push the car into the water or something like that. There's a lot of unknowns, so people are kind of trying to fill in the blanks themselves. Wow. And especially, like, why did they wait so long? Like, Yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, Exactly. That, that's a really long that's like time you, to just sit on that information. That's suspicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when asked for comment, a representative from the police said, the alleged witnesses were interviewed multiple times. We know that the car fell into the sea for some reason, but at this time, foul play is not uh, suspected. And Yashiki's father in particular has grown weary of the police and who said, I don't trust the witnesses at all. I don't know who they are. I have asked the police, but they won't tell me. So the police won't even release the name of these witnesses to the father of one of the victims. So that just seems really fishy. So the police in Japan are also just as fucking uh, sneaky and snarky as... Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it happens everywhere. What? And then of course, of course, no one knows why the police waited six years to follow up with the witnesses in the first place. They've given no statement qualifying why it took six years for them to say, oh, we have these witnesses. Maybe we should actually contact them. They were bored. So, they had nothing else to do. And they were like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. We got these people we've never interviewed. Yeah. <laughs> they're going Come back on. through old files oh wait oh huh i guess we should like maybe do it <laughs> so the investigation is still ongoing obviously because Sorry. it's only been a little over a year since we since we even knew that like since we even knew what happened so the Im- investigation is still ongoing and there's no telling what will come out from it so right now we still have more questions and answers the family still has more questions than answers, but hopefully they'll figure something out. Hopefully we'll learn something new. So this is, the next case is Ursula Barwick, our first of two Australian stories. So the basics of Ursula Barwick's case, in the spring of 87, 17-year-old Ursula Barwick boarded a train to Sydney from her home of Corindy in New South Wales. She told her parents she'd found a job there and would contact them as soon as she could. Ursula's grandfather drove her to the train station and her father gave her cash to get settled. He and her stepmother planned to go down to Sydney that weekend to bring her linen and other essentials when she'd called with her new address. Unfortunately, they never heard from Ursula ever again. Um, Her father said never in our wildest dreams when she got on that train did we ever, ever think that that would be the last time we actually saw her, which I guess kind of is 
I guess by you can probably figure out what's going to happen. But, mm -hmm. you know, while Ursula had been going through a rebellious phase because she was 17 years old and she wasn't dealing with her parents' divorce very well, it didn't make sense for her to not contact any members of her family. Carrying a photo of her daughter in his wallet, or her daughter, carrying a photo of his daughter in his wallet, Peter Barwick, her father, began a search through the seedy underbelly of Sydney. You soon realize what sort of deviant people are out there, and it was pretty sad to see it all firsthand. So he did all of this because he didn't feel like the Sydney police were doing enough to find his daughter. Okay, Liam Neeson, relax. <laughs> the journey led him to places like King's Cross brothels to ask questions and see if anybody had seen his outgoing and friendly daughter. And as the years passed, every now and then a police officer would call and say they'd taken on the case, but no family members or friends were ever formally interviewed by the police at any point. What? So police would just be like, I hey, will looking for your daughter, eh? And then that's a click a few years later. Hello there, governor. And I guess that's British. Wow. Shrimp on <laughs> the Bobby, we're looking for your daughter. And oh, then, you know, click five years later, same thing. Um, so this happened. She disappeared in 1987. In 2010, the Australian Federal Police featured Ursula in a major campaign using new age progression technology. Digitally altered images of how she might look aged 40 appeared in airports and on TV. However, Ursula's cousin Melissa got upset when she saw the images because her hair color was wrong, her eye color was wrong, and the date she went missing was wrong. She made multiple phone calls, hoping to get the errors fixed. What was right? How do you expect to be found? Name and shape of face. Lord. She's dyed, she's dyed oh. her hair. She's put some contacts in. You know. She just that's she basically on some date. But that's basically what they did with, like, Christine and Walter. They were like, oh, he's been gone for five months. He might look different. So I'm sure they released this saying, oh, she's been gone for 23 years. She's probably going to look different. Oh, they were like, uh, sorry, we can't fix it unless the New South Wales police force reopens the case. What the fuck? Yeah. You can't fix it? You can't just actually, go in and do some editing shit? No, not unless the police actually reopened the case again. Ursula's brother Andrew actually became a police officer in the hopes that he could somehow find his missing sister. And when a colleague of his named Senior Constable Adam Marsh got promoted to the missing persons unit... Andrew sought him out to tell him about Ursula and made Marsh promise that he would look into the case if he was able to. So we're going another, we're, I'm really speed running this case. I'm leaving out a lot of details, but I'm trying to like go over the big parts. There's a, I went in a real rabbit hole with this case. In 2014, King's Cross detectives, Kurt Hayward and Amy Scott were assigned Ursula's case as part of a statewide push inside the New South Wales police force to clear up any stalled missing persons case. Multiple family members were interviewed for the first time. 27 years later, they're finally interviewing family members. And the cousin Melissa, the same one who had called and been like, hey, everything about this is wrong. She actually helped connect them with some of Ursula's school friends. Detective Sergeant Hayward, Kurt Hayward, came to the conclusion that it was a missing persons case gone wrong. And that it wasn't a homicide, but something else. What? what? So Elizabeth Barwick, who, is, who was Ursula's stepmother, said the detectives kept them constantly informed of any lead they were chasing. 
And she said, that's what made us feel part of it this time. And that maybe this is it. Maybe this is our time to finally find out what had happened to Ursula. In 2015, the case was once again brought to the general public, this time in another missing persons campaign by New South Wales. And while the only tip Crime Stoppers Australia received turned out to be a mistaken identity, the campaign did stir some memories for Andrew Barwick's former colleague, uh, Senior Constable March. So swirled in his brain a little bit, and he was like, oh, I think uh, that name sounds familiar. Oh, it does. Five years earlier, in 2010, Marsh had been working on an operation at the missing persons unit comparing long-term missing person cases with unidentified remains. While reviewing a file about a young female car crash victim, he noticed similarities with Ursula's case, especially when he compared the photos. When he tried to confirm the victim's identity, he noted the body had been identified as Jessica Pierce by a friend who saw the body at the morgue. But, sin- but Marsh couldn't find any trace of this mysterious friend who had identified her. Well, this is back in 2010 when he's finding all of this out. In an attempt to see if someone might recognize her, he prepared a media release, but it was sidelined and his concerns were dismissed by his superiors. Distraught, but... Because he had just been assigned to this, he let it go and didn't say anything to the Barwick family at the time. Why? However, when he saw Ursula Barwick on the news again during 2015, when they released it again, he saw a different photo than the one he had previously seen on file. Because the one on file was most likely the one with the wrong hair color and the wrong eye color. According to his official statement, he immediately got a chill down his spine. The photographs strongly resembled the photographs I had seen of the deceased female. He passed on his suspicions to the new detectives, Kurt Hayward and Amy Scott, and they showed the photographs of Jessica Pierce to Peter and Elizabeth Barwick. According to her father, the first photograph he showed us was a body on a slab. And I thought, my godfather, this is a bit horrific. But then I looked closer. Her eyes and her teeth were Ursula. And then they got to the last photo. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the last photo was her lying there in her jeans and her top, the clothes that she wore that we knew were exactly what she had to wear. I just looked at Lib, and she looked at me, and she said, that's your Ursh. Which is kind of a terrible nickname. With this new information, they were finally able to put the pieces together of Ursula's last days. So she had arrived in Sydney like she told her parents, but it wasn't because she had a job lined up. It was just because she wanted to get away. She ended up in King's Cross, hanging out and playing pool with a group of street kids. Within a short amount of time, she'd found a boyfriend named Mark from Melbourne and integrated herself in the family of runaway kids who lived in squats and moved around. She decided to introduce herself as Jess, a name she'd chosen for a future daughter, Oh God! not knowing it would become her name for the next three decades. On October 27th, 1987, Ursula went on an adventure to Melbourne with Mark and two other friends named Hans and Robert. Hans had stolen a car and drove the first leg of the trip. Robert was supposed to drive the second half. In the early hours of the morning, traveling at high speeds, the car veered into the path of a semi-truck. As a result of the accident, Mark became a paraplegic, Hans went to prison for stealing the car, and Robert went to prison for reckless driving causing death. When her body was brought into the morgue in Sydney, no one came to claim her. Are you fucking As kidding Ursula me? Distraught, 
So all these people are rushed to the hospital. One person's rushed to the hospital, hopefully, and the other two go to prison. And there's this fourth person that they're just like, yeah, she just went to the morgue. And because they didn't know her name, they couldn't, they didn't. As Ursula's distraught family searched, the body of the girl known only as Jessica lay in the morgue for 15 months. She was the same height as the missing girl. They were both fair with blue eyes and the same age range. Because the police did not cross-check Ursula's missing persons report against unidentified bodies in the morgue, the Barwick family grieved and wondered and suffered for nearly 30 years. Eventually, and this was before they knew her identity, Jessica was buried at Emu Plain Cemetery in New South Wales in an unmarked pauper's grave without a funeral. I don't know why this is making me so sad. I mean, I know why it's making me sad. It's terrible, but like, whew. So in 2017, the coroner granted the Barwick family special approval to finally have a memorial service for Ursula, close to where they think her body may be. Unfortunately, they will never truly know for sure because of poor record keeping at the time. Even 30 years later, more than 50 family and friends came to remember her and celebrate her short life. Here's the worst part. I'm sorry for everything. I'm going to cry. I'm just going to cry and y'all are going to have to forgive me. In 2004, 17 years after Ursula's disappearance and 11 years before the truth would be uncovered, Ursula's mother, Cherie, was diagnosed with bone cancer. She died without knowing what had happened to her only daughter because police didn't take the time to do the bare minimum of cross-referencing between departments. There's no excuse for that. There's no excuse. Not at all. In 1987, we had the technology, well, not the technology, but we had the, there was more that we could have done. Exactly. DNA was a thing, like, yeah. not, like, you, and yeah. you didn't even need her DNA, really. You just needed to go to one other department and find out, like. Yeah, it's not even like it was in a different city. Like, all you had to do was be like, who, do we have any unidentified bodies in the morgue? Let's check and be sure. Laziness. I feel and like that. Don't even give a like, shit. Yeah. I feel like that's what you should do. Like, if you, because you don't have a ton of computer technology, you don't have the like ability to check cameras and da 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 da. So you should. Exactly. That just seems like easy legwork. Like, oh, we so, can't find this person. That's like, so this person. Yeah. Dead. So that's, Let's see. Yeah. So that's a really sad story. So I wanted to put that one in the middle and do like a happier story at the end and it's happy because spoiler alert i feel like the grandfather like when even when i was writing up the notes i feel like the grandfather in uh princess bride like i just want you to know in this story nobody dies everybody everybody lives through the next story which i kind of needed after that last one because it got me really riled up and angry well it should that's just terrible imagine if that was anybody in your family i mean like I'm born into the ground, oh. especially because they'll never know where she's buried. Yeah. They will literally never know where her body is oh. unless they just force them to dig up all of the graves in that area. Oh, God. So last story is, and you guys actually might have heard of this because I rem- when I was uh, researching it, I, I remembered a little bit of it. But this is a story of Natasha Ryan. This one also is in Australia. Mm-hmm. So... On August 31st, 1998, Jennifer Kerwin dropped her daughter, 14-year-old Natasha Ryan, off at Rockhampton High School. When Natasha failed to return home later that evening, Jennifer called the police and reported her missing. According to witnesses, the last time she was seen was outside a movie theater, smoking a cigarette and chatting with an older man. 
Now, prior to this disappearance, Natasha had already been classified as a troubled teen because she had a history of school suspensions, drug use, and self-harm. Combined with the fact that she had run away from home just a month earlier, the police did not take her, her story seriously or didn't take her disappearance seriously at first. However, when the police realized that a number of females had disappeared in the area, 39-year-old Julie Turner in December 1998, 36-year-old Beverly Lego in March of 1999, and both 19-year-old Sylvia Benedetti and 9-year-old Kara Steinhardt in April of 1999, they began to suspect that Natasha may have been the victim of a serial killer. So with this in mind, yeah, with this in mind and with the other victims, an extensive search was initiated and more than 100 volunteers rallied together in the hopes Natasha would be found alive if she was found at all, along with the other victims. So extensive areas of bushland were burned to aid the search and more than 100 local state emergency service volunteers gave their time to help. The search ended up costing taxpayers an estimated $400,000. As time passed with no luck and no sign of their daughter, Natasha's parents, Jennifer and Robert, feared the worst and became convinced they would never see their daughter again. In May of 2001, after nearly three long years of mourning for their daughter, her parents held a memorial service on what would have been her 17th birthday and said their final goodbyes. So, two years earlier... In May of 1999, a man named Leonard John Frazier, later dubbed the Rockhampton Rapist, was charged with the rape and murder of Kyra Steinhardt. While in prison awaiting trial, he confessed to the murders of Natasha, Sylvia, Beverly, and Julie, and even drew a map where they could allegedly locate Natasha's remains. However, eight days into the murder trial in 2003, prosecutor Paul Rutledge announced that Leonard Frazier was not guilty of the murder of Natasha Ryan. Rutledge revealed to the courtroom, which included Natasha's parents, that an anonymous note had been sent to the police telling them exactly where they could find her. In a strange twist, she had been alive and well all along, living with her boyfriend Scott Black a mere five minutes away from the home she grew up in. What the fuck? She just ran away and started a new life? I'm sorry. Are you kidding me? Didn't even start a new life. Like, I'll get into it, but yeah. Four years and eight months after she'd seemed to disappear into thin air, 18-year-old Natasha attended her own murder trial. She told the court she had never met Leonard. She'd simply run away from home because she could no longer stand her mother's strict rules and their volatile relationship. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So prior to running away in August, Natasha had taken off a month prior and was found just two days later hiding out at a motel with her 22-year-old boyfriend, Scott Black, a milk delivery man, who had known her since she was 12 when he'd been dating her older sister. No. First of all, no. Second of all, it's always the boyfriend. Third of all, that is creepy fucking vibes. Creepy fucking vibes. Fourth of all, the milkman. milkman. I know. I know. At the time, Scott claimed he'd only helped Natasha because she threatened to kill herself if he didn't. Oh, my God. So when she ran away again... The police assumed she had run off with Scott again, and they knocked on his door, but he insisted that she was not with him, and he had no idea where she was. And the police did absolutely zero follow-up after that. They were like, well, Scott said she's not there, so I guess she's just not there. What do we do next? He could have also, like... kangaroo patch, I guess. He could have murdered her, but yet there was no follow-up. Like, if a a girl is saying, if you don't 
if you don't stay with me, I'm going to kill myself. He could have been like, okay, no, I'm not, no, bye. And then, like, <laughs> I can move on and do my thing. But the police are just like, and he said no, it's fine. He said she's not there. Guess we got to go check the dingoes, make sure one of them didn't get her. <laughs> Dingo ate my baby. <laughs> Um, Jingo ate my milk pen. <laughs> oh man! So most of the time, while this sixteen-year-old was she even sixteen? No, she was fourteen. Yeah. Most of the time, this fourteen-year-old child living with a twenty-two-year-old man was in hiding and considered dead. She lived in a beach house with him in Queensland before moving back to Rockhampton after he received a transfer with his milk delivery job. The entire time, Natasha lived in the dark, with the curtains drawn and the windows and doors locked tight so she would remain out of sight. She revealed she would sometimes crouch on the floor of Scott's Holden Ute, which I looked that up because I'd never heard of this car before, an ugly sedan truck hybrid. It looks like that ugly Pontiac fake el camino el caminos look kind of cool but this is like an ugly version of it but she would crouch on the floor so they could take a short trip to farnborough beach and have a midnight swim together she also ventured outside the house a number of times under the cover of darkness but never in the daytime for fear she would run into her parents or she would be recognized by somebody when visitors would come to see scott she would hide in a bedroom closet which is exactly oh where the police found her crouching when they raided his home on April 10th, 2003. After whoever, we I don't even think they ever found out who left the anonymous note, but whoever let the prosecutors know that she wasn't dead. <laughs> and by the way, when I mentioned that her parents were there, nobody told her parents until it was announced in court. So it wasn't like the police were like, eh, doing a raid. We think we might have found your daughter. Do you want to know? You can come with us if you'd like, if you want to see her. No, they she just they just found out in the courtroom with everybody else. What the fuck? She's like sitting right next to them. They're just like <laughs> What the fuck? So, uh, soon after being discovered alive, questions began to be asked about whether the couple would face criminal charges for their role in the false investigation into Natasha's murder. In 2005, Rockhampton District Court Judge Graham Britton sentenced Scott to three years in jail, which was suspended after 12 months for perjury after he pled guilty to telling investigating police officers that he didn't know where Natasha was. Which is so hilarious because it's like, apparently it's illegal to lie to police, but they can lie to you. Right, exactly. Literally. Um, A year later... Natasha was found guilty of causing a false police investigation and was fined $1,000. However, Magistrate Annette Hennessy ruled that she did not have the means to pay the cost of the investigation. She's just a little baby. Woo woo. Um, in the same court proceedings, Scott was fined $3,000 in order to pay $16,000 towards the massive investigation costs. None of the police were ever, nothing happened to them. For like Being dumbasses who didn't like follow up yeah. on shit and just were like, eh, I don't feel like getting into it. Pedophile told us the truth. Pedophiles don't lie. Can't trust a pedophile. Who can you trust? After receiving no punishment of any kind, Natasha gave exclusive interviews to 60 Minutes, who paid her around $250,000 for an exclusive interview. And Australia's highest selling magazine, Woman's Day, paid her more than $120,000 to share her story. I'm sorry. 
Natasha and Scott married in 2008 and sold photos of the wedding to Woman's Day for another $200,000. And after making so much money from the press talking about her story, Natasha has decided now that she really wants to like lead a private life away from the limelight. And she goes by the name Tash Black now to avoid being associated oh. with the story. Is she a stripper now? No, she's like a nurse or she something. She's like Optimom? Is she in porn? I mean, if this would have happened, actually, it did happen in 2008. So I don't know how, I guess, just being in Australia, she avoided that. But yeah, no, she just made a ton of money from her story. Changed, well, I guess she changed her name because she got married, but she goes by a different version of her name now. And they have like two or three kids and it's still gross. So yeah, happy ending, I guess. Happy ending to still a shit job from police. It's happy in the sense. save the police. I would be happier if the milkman was dead. Yeah. Happier if, if she had drowned him at a beach, but. She's a creep. Yeah. Or for Dingo <laughs> ate him. She's a creep. Well, friends, we uh, we hope you enjoyed our return to the airwaves. And uh, always remember, call a middle-aged woman who watches Snapped and <laughs> listens to My Favorite Murder before you call you the police. Yep. We will help you first. That's it. That's all I have to say. Uh, thank you so much for coming back and we will talk to you next time alright guys bye I would like to live I just want to do God's will but I want you to know